Welcome back to Consilience Conversations 003, and I find myself back this time with Dr. Matt Roos. Welcome back, Matt. Thanks. Hello again, Alex. How are you? I'm doing well, and uh, for this time, uh, just so the listeners know who are on YouTube and also on Anchor, I'm going to be sharing a couple notes that Matt put together for this um, meeting, just so that you know you have something to touch base on. And uh, this is a uh, this. If this goes well, which I think it probably will, this might be something that we continue to do into the future. And so, Matt, what was it that we wanted to talk about today? We've talked about confirmation bias before now. We've talked about cognitive distortions from the cognitive behavioral therapy world. But, well, what is it we should talk about today? Well, uh, any, of you, any of your listeners or, or uh, viewers at this point looking at the YouTube uh, clip will know, but um, you know, those, we've been really hitting this uh, book by John Haidt and uh, Greg Lukianoff uh, quite a bit, and um, one of the chapters that uh, I think we should talk about is the Us versus Them chapter, which the title sort of explains it all. But we that doesn't sound like it's very important to our current political situation or to any human situation we would ever find ourselves in. Totally irrelevant. Totally. This is this is purely for intellectual interest. It really has, doesn't doesn't relate to anything in the real world. Okay, so well then I think that's pretty interesting because I'm, I'm interested in the us versus them distinction. I'm interested in the human perceptual structures that make it necessary for us to see the world in terms of in-groups and out-groups, which we've talked about some, and, and just how easy it is to develop an in-group and thus an in-group bias, and how if people are in my in-group and I can recognize what my in-groups are, I can recognize my own real biases towards them in uh, life. And so, so I think you have some research here showing uh, just how, and I think this was in the chapter itself, just how easy it is for a human to develop an in-group an in-group A and an in-group bias B. Could you maybe explain some of yeah, what this yeah, yeah. is? Yeah. Sure. Uh, it's pretty uh, elementary, and I don't think it would be challenging for any of your, your listeners to, uh, to believe. But um, so this is sort of what uh, psychologists would call a schema. So that is, um, there, this is a framework that people would think of as a schema where it, um, it is sort of almost like an ad lib. It's us versus them. Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? And a shortcut in thinking in a way is to just fill in the blanks. And that's, that's sort of your first instinct and, and also much more than your first thing, instinct. It can go way beyond that. But yeah, I'm going to cite a couple of uh, uh, experiments or data that are taken uh, right from the book. And the first here is uh, Henry Tashfell. I'm not exactly sure how to say his name, but this Polish psychologist. Uh, and he was around during World War II, um, and his family was, uh, members were mostly murdered uh, by the Nazis at that time. And so a question that he was um, interested in, and it's sort of amazing that someone would take on this sort of research, uh, the question of sort of do the, you know, do, can people re be so overwhelmed or so um, in their nature to follow authority that it will go to the point that they will kill or harm others uh, just because they are inclined to follow that authority figure? Um, so you might think that this is sort of interesting that he would take on this this challenge. Almost, can he? Will he find evidence? Because he might find evidence that would sort of redeem those uh, who had committed these atrocities against his family members. But in any case, um, he did a series of experiments um, in which the, um, he basically gave people, the, the subjects of the experiments, some sort of group identity. 
Um, and that could be in some ways by putting them together, uh, together and taking on some tasks. We'll talk about this uh, a little bit later in the Robbie's, Robbers Cave experiment, which was by a, a different experimenter. But more importantly is what he found is that um, it could take almost the, the most slight trivial distinction uh, between members of the groups in order for them to align more closely with their so-called in-group versus their out-group. So in the extreme ca uh, case, I believe he just flipped the coin and the subject saw the <laughs> coin flip and saw that, uh, okay, you're a member of the heads group or you're a member of the tails group. And then he had a series of different games in which points or money were distributed and uh, statistically relevant, they the subjects uh, favored their in-group, even though they had no idea who these people were, nor their affiliation, they, they still did this. Uh, and they did a series of experiments that go beyond that. Um, and the other quick one I'll, I'll cite is more in the neuroscience realm, and it's really just a sort of a neural cor correlation with that behavior. Uh, so uh, David Eagleman uh, did some experiments using uh, magnetic uh, resonance technology, uh, fMRI, so that's uh, uh, functional uh, magnetic resonance imaging, and that's technology that can show um, sort of where there's increased oxygenated blood flow in different parts of the brain. But what he showed uh, was that subjects that were in this scanner, while they observed, um, they, they were observing videos of other people in some sort of discomfort, comfort or pain. So like a, a pinprick perhaps in the, in the fingertip, you know, very, relatively mild, but still uncomfortable and unwanted. And he set it up such that these people had uh, in-group versus out-group uh, uh, observations. That is, perhaps if they were a white American male, they saw some white American males, and then they saw uh, women from a foreign country, or, you know, I'm sure there are a wide variety of these things. But the point here is that uh, they, the neural signals were, uh, that are correlated with uh, pain sensing regions or regions of the brain that are more active when pain is received were stronger when they were observing when they were observing those that are in their in-group. So this is a really a physiological uh, correlation with this behavioral phenomenon that we see. So uh, that doesn't mean we understand how that comes about, but this empathy, there seems to be an empathy and it is known that there are correlated brain signals with it. That's, that's fascinating because it almost suggests that because if it only takes a coin toss in order to identify yourself with another person, it seems as if we very clearly are social animals made to identify with others within a group framework. And thus, right. we even at a neural level develop more empathy with them in an, in an effort to I, perhaps um, mimic both their behaviors and beliefs, even to a point of... Uh, feeling the same pain as them it, it, it's as if part of the evolutionary idea behind this is the closer we can be to each other in action and in thought the more trust we'll have therefore the stronger a group we will be but the problem is we need to consider the foundations of the group which is something that we do not naturally do Right, and you said you said a keyword there uh, a few sentences back about an agreement. So, and you know, this was discussed in the te in the in the book as well. But that that um, you are more likely to agree with others in your group um, than others in the the out group, uh, even if you have sort of no real reason to agree with them. It's sort of it's just uh, so you can get into sort of a a groupthink mentality with those inside your group and sort of develop uh, an opposition to those that say anything that are outside of the group. 
Right. And so, so something really interesting about this chapter is it made a distinction between two types of identity politics. And it said there's an identity politics with a common enemy, common enemy identity politics, as well as um, what was it, common goal identity politics or a, a different version. That, and they use the example of Dr. King and another person as well. Um, I've forgotten her name at this point. I could open the book, but I'll look well, at they it. Use it uh, yeah, uh, I don't recall her name is, as well, but uh, it's common humanity. Uh, right. And so, so rather than attempting to narrow one circle uh, in order to exclude other people and to identify sort of a threat against which one directs one's sort of attack capacities or aggressions, um, the common identity or the common humanity identity politics seek to expand the circle. So something said about Dr. King is that he would appeal, he would say, there, you know, there are no black people, there are no white people, there are Americans, or there are Christian people, or there are humans. And he would, so he would, he would go down a level of analysis, right, and try and find that which was common between people in order to bind them together, because he understood that political change requires voters, which means people need to follow you, which means you need to resonate at a common level with a lot of people. Um, and so height seems to even and he and, yeah. and, and he did this in a manner that was sorry to interrupt to uh, sort of bring them into you know expand the uh, the group of people that he's including in uh, that he are that he's trying to find commonalities amongst these uh, people to uh, when he says something is unjust uh, if he expands the the group that he's talking to by including them somehow and, and bringing them into that in group. Then when he describes something as unjust, they are more likely to feel that that injustice is impacts to them because it's impacting others that are now in their group. Oh, I love that. So here's a question I have for you. And I know you don't have, you know, a research database sitting right in front of you right now that you're scouring. Um, so maybe we can answer this question as, right now. as we move forward. But what tends to bind a group together more positive reinforcers and reward or negative ones like a shared burden because i i have a hypothesis that it's of course the shared burden but um but i would love to right. see research on yeah. that um what draws people together it's a great it's a yeah i think it's a great great question i i, I don't have the answers because <laughs> i don't have that database at my fingertips my you know my instincts which could be wrong is that it's a a shared burden. Um, of course, sometimes those the two things can go together. What we haven't mentioned is that part of this, uh, the reason human nature may, this, this may exist in human nature, may be related to our evolution and our uh, existence as, as humans in tribal societies, you know, in, in Africa, in which we um, form small groups and working together in those groups was important for survival but sometimes um, conflicts occurred. And so taking an aggressive, aggressive stance against anyone that was outside of your group could have also been beneficial for survival. Uh, and so both those things are sort of um, common goals, but they're a mix of both positive yeah, and negative and, goals. And also within, within the group itself, there might be a requirement for aggression in order to achieve a higher status within the group and a dominance ritual, say like say, a fight physically or later on in say like the Athenian times, a debate. Um, and so, yeah, well, so that's very interesting. So 
we've been making some interesting claims and uh, reporting on some findings from the psychology and neuroscience realm, but I think it's only fair for me to sort of stick my neck out with an interesting interpretation from my realm, the classical literature realm. And so do you mind if I, if I sort of explain this odd Glaucus and Diomedes and Diomedes expands the circle um, claim here from, from the Iliad, Homer's Iliad? Matt? Yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm losing you here. All right, can you hear me now? Yeah, go ahead. All right, all right, so why does it say Diomedes expands the circle, and who are Glaucus and Diomedes? Well, basically there was this war in the 12th or 13th century BCE that was reported on in the 8th century by this oral poet named Homer, who I, who I teach, um, whom I teach. And, um, in the middle of this war, this Trojan War, caused by the stealing of Helen from Menelaus of Sparta, there, there's a big battle going on between an Achaean warrior, that's the side that has been spurned, that has been aggrieved, or aggrieved, that has um, had Helen stolen from them, and this Trojan named Glaucus. And before Diomedes kills Glaucus, he has him tell him who he is. And Glaucus gives this famous line that, why ask my name, Diomedes, just as the leaves on a tree are, so are the generations of men, which does seem to be actually physically true. We, we grow, we age, we change color, and then we fall. Um, but these are enemies on the battlefield. They are both respective outgroup threats to each other's respective in-group, and also to their desires or, or known goals to gain more glory. If you die, you don't get much more glory. And so... Diomedes is going to kill this guy, but Glaucus eventually says that his grandfather, um, Bellerophon, was uh, housed once, or given, um, Diomedes tells Glaucus that uh, Bellerophon, Glaucus's um, grandfather, once housed his grandfather, Aeneas. And so because of that, they, they have honored the guest-host relationship to each other, the Zinnia, sort of like how we still take a bottle of wine over to somebody's house or give, um, uh, um, gift bags to kids after a, a, um, a gift-giving uh, birthday ceremony. I, funny that I would forget that. Man, it's been a long time. But the idea is that these men find common ground in the middle of the war. Um, Glaucus and Diomedes, because their grandfathers were friends, then exchange gifts with each other, indicating that they're friends rather than blows with each other. And so even in ancient literature here, we find a capacity to find a more supervening value or a larger human value that is even more important than the sort of uh, values causing proximate conflict. So both these men want to win glory. Both of them are fighting for their respective countries. Both of them are there to, to help, and, but they don't have much at risk. Diomedes is there to get glory. He's from Argus. Argus will be fine. Nobody's attacking it. Glaucus is there supporting Sarpedon from Lycia. Lycia, again, is far away from Troy. It's fine. And so um, these guys are there to battle, battle, um, to win. But apparently the friendship of their families is even more important than that. And so I thought that was just a, I thought that was a good example to start with of um, people finding common ground and thus expanding their in-group and changing the way they perceive another and how they act towards them. Yeah, I think this is a great example. Um, I don't know if you want to say more about these other, you know, what I found a little bit interesting in the story, what I thought was uh, great and amusing about the fact that you selected this is this, 
this other part, part of the story in which they exchange their armor. Um, and Diomedes gives Glaucus his, I guess, bronze armor. It's of modest value, I guess. It's and worth nine cows. Say again? Uh, it's worth nine, nine. cattle. Right. Glaucus's golden armor, like you're about to say, is worth 100. So it's over 10 times. Right. It's one tenfold. Uh, right, right. 11 fold. And so that's really uh, just amusing, truly. Um, and so I thought it was just interesting that you picked that partially, you know, it was a good example just for the expansion of the circle and they find commonalities that is bring, uh, Diomedes brings Caucus into his, his in-group um, by expanding the circle. Um, but also the fact that, um, in the end, this is for nefarious reasons, if you will, uh, or at least that was my interpretation, having only been introduced to this topic um, and spent five minutes on it earlier today. But That's in contrast to you know the examples of the the, the text that we've been reading uh, by Height and uh, uh, um, Lukianov, uh, which were generally positive examples, right? Let's bring people into the fold, bringing them into our group, and you know, all we'll, we'll be happy together. Uh, this is what, you know, deceiving someone, it seemed as though, uh, using that, uh, that tactic. Well, I have three things to say about that that are very interesting. The first is, in book two in the Catalog of Shifts, Homer does call Glaucus a fool for this, um, for, for this exchange. But the second thing I would say is that Diomedes and Glaucus give differing value armors to each other not not simply not simply because Diomedes um, because Diomedes is smarter than Glaucus or Glaucus is losing his wits or 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 Diomedes doesn't understand what's happening. I I think more the situation and this is how I teach it to my students is that Glaucus is grateful to be alive, and Diomedes would have clearly had the upper hand on him. Diomedes, the book before, has just contended with gods, Ares and Aphrodite and has been given the love of Athena, and he's a stud. He's the scariest guy on the battlefield besides this one other guy called Ajax the Greater right now. So what I often teach the students is, did Glaucus really get a bad deal, or did he get an even better deal than Diomedes? Because Diomedes gave him the gift of life right. as well. But Could have, could have been a win-win situation. Right, right, exactly, exactly. And also a mark of the fact that Glaucus met Diomedes and it still didn't go perfectly well with him because something interesting is that even though Dante didn't read the Iliad, he knew stories about it, and he actually has Diomedes with Ulysses, Odysseus, stuck in hell in the eighth circle with the deceitful counselors. So just to say, there's a little element of that. Um, uh, in well, the I lost you briefly at the end there, Alex, but it sounded like a pretty miserable potential outcome that was averted, so that's, that's great for uh, Glaucus. Yeah, and so the reason I have Achaeans and Trojans here is that the, the last thing I'd like to say about building an in-group is that something known about, and this is why we're not calling these people Greeks, is that before the Trojan War, there were various tribes of individuals um, down, are just me, interesting, okay. You're showing up now as twice, Matt, so, well, we're twice the fun. But, um, so, before... Oh, okay. Before the Trojan War happened, there were various sort of tribes and principalities of the Greeks. There was Mycenae, there was Argos, there was Phthia, there was Ithaca, um, there was, and, and there was Phthia, uh, or excuse me, um, also um, where Nestor is from, Sandy Pylos, and various other places, Akinthos, 
tons of other places. They were not unified, even though they, they shared the same gods and spoke the same language. It seems to have been the, the, the inciting events of them binding together and becoming a collective unity, a nation at some point, was the stealing of Helen from Menelaus. That was something all of them could get behind. That the idea of a wife being stolen from a husband who had let this guest into his house, who then trespassed again upon the Zinnia, the guest host relationship, was something that was so infuriating to them, something protected by Zeus, that every single man, every lord who heard about that, had to go to this to this war. And uh, in fighting uh -huh. that war, unified under a single king, that is what led to Greece becoming a nation. Right, um, and there's our, our common enemy, uh, identity politics. Is that the analogy? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's both. I think it's both. I think it showed them that they valued the same things together and that these people clearly did not value the same thing. Right. And that since this was their top value, those people had to go. Um, <laughs> they had to pay. Well, and you know, there, there are chances during the Trojan War for the Trojans to give Helen back, and they don't. Mm -hmm. so, so, you know, it's not, just, it's not just that the Achaeans just put the foot down. Um, they did go try and get Helen back peacefully, though prepare, prepared to fight with an army. And uh, the Trojans, they didn't do it. You know, they didn't take the opportunity. So, And we know how that went in the end. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Okay, okay. Well, I think we're, we're getting to a pretty good spot here. Um, we probably have time to talk about the Milgram and the Robbers Cave experiment. Okay, well, could you... Explain this Stanley Milgram prison experiment. Yeah, I'll try to make it real quick here. I think this one might be a little bit, a bit off base uh, yeah. in terms of this sort of us-them paradigm, but, but we'll just throw it out there and see how it goes. Yeah. Uh, so these are some, uh, Stanley Milgram was a psychologist, and back in the 60s or so, I think he did these experiments. Um, and it was basically, a, a, um, so, so he had the subjects, so there's two, different types of subjects in the spirit in this experiment. And one group of subjects are actually not truly subjects. They're, they are sort of actors. They're, they're sort of in on the game with uh, Dr. Milgram. And what Milgram, the, 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 real, the real subjects are, don't know that they're subjects. So by the way, these sort of experiments would not, experiments would not be, be done today. Uh, they are considered sort of unethical for various reasons. But um, you have to be, know that you are a subject in the experiment and be told sort of um, what the possibilities are, the ramifications, and you know, sign off. It's kind of like liability reasons. Anyway, these uh, subjects were believed that they were, um, in a sense, research assistants. So that they're coming in and helping uh, the experimenters, whether that's Dr. Milgram or his other uh, uh, experimental staff, um, run these experiments. And the experiments, I don't know what they, the subjects were told about why these experiments are being run, but there's something about like pain thresholds. And so what the subjects, that is the ones who believe that they are uh, helping with the, conduct the experiments, come in and it's, it's in a sort of mock prison environment. And somehow the, the subjects are to be, um, actually I think this might be mixed up. So there's a different prison experiment in which, um, uh, there are jailers and there are uh, inmates. Mm -hmm. So, and maybe, um, 
Is that the one you were thinking of here? No, no, I know that okay. one too, and I know that's good. I knew I was going I don't, to- I'm not even sure. I don't think that's Milgram. Okay, so I'll just move forward. This one is, um, so they're basically applying an electric shock to yes. the, the, the actors that are acting as if they are subjects. And so this is, again, sort of about authority. Um, and will the, um, uh, you know what? I, so again, it's related a little bit to the Polish psychologist experiments. And the, the subject is instructed to keep turning up the voltage that's applied for these shocks to people. Um, uh -huh. And these, these people, they, until it, and they know that this is becoming more and more painful, or they believe it to be, and the, the acting subjects are shy, screaming in pain and uh, acting uh, profusely. And I think they actually might have even like recorded some screaming and things like that that they could play. Yes. You know, they're not exactly across from each other. They're presumably in different rooms. Anyway, the point of this is that in many cases, something like, we'll just say, I think they did a, a meta survey, something like 30 to 60% of the subjects that were uh, believed that they were research uh, assistants would take the voltages so high that they were at the level that they could cause death. And I, I'm assuming that they were informed that this was sort of like the death level. And people would do it anyway because they were told to do it. Um, and so it's really shocking and, and, and there are some, this is again kind of related to the possibility of like were Nazis just doing or some of them being doing, doing things because they were told to do it. And there are many criticisms of that uh, interpretation. Um, so it's a fascinating experiment in and of itself, um, somewhat interesting in sort of its relationships to things like World War II and Nazism, although that those, weeks are, those links are weak. But perhaps the question that, we, that is pertinent here is, did, they, did these subjects who tortured effectively these, these other people or believed that they were torturing them, did they do that because they felt like they were in an in-group? Were they with, with the experimenters? Were they part of the experimenters? And all the other uh, subjects, uh, who they knew, who they believed to be experimental subjects, volunteers, were nonetheless part of this outgroup, and therefore they were willing to subject them to, to pain. Right, that's exactly my hypothesis. That's why I wanted to consider this, because I know that that's not traditionally what people look for in this, but what I think is operating here is that when you identify with the, the research group, you, you, you believe uh, sort of inherently, uh, without laying it out like this probably, that the research to your own in-group is worth even the sacrifice of somebody from an out-group. And you think about some of the experiments the Nazis were doing, and in particular that the J Japanese were doing during World War II, Unit 731, mm -hmm. and uh, how inhuman it was. And that makes me think that the, the power of the in-group, out-group distinction is that it, if taken to its extreme, which that experiment shows in a fairly easy capacity to do, um, you will do anything for your in-group and do anything uh, to or against your out-group. Um, and that that's sort of a fundamental way of human, see, human seeing the world. And so it's interesting to see just how capable you are if that distinction is made in any way. Um, this, this could be, and so yeah, that's that's interesting, and that's not what I was thinking about is your 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 connection with uh, uh, Nazi Germany, but it's a it's a it is a an interesting and fascinating one. Uh, one of the criticisms I'll just quickly put it out there that that people have against connecting the um, the Milgram's experiment to uh, the kind of experiments you're talking about, or you know, Nazi 
Germany extermination of the Jewish people, uh, as well as experiments like you're talking about, Ernest's experiments on individuals, is that, um, you know, in the Milgram experiments, they still, you know, they were told they were, the subject, the, the subjects that were uh, helping assist in these experiments, uh, in their mind, were told that there would be no permanent damage to the subjects that they were shocking. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't believe that they were really being inflicted with pain. Um, however, that is still different than, um, you know, the, the experiments, the real experiments that you're referring to, in which case those experiments, uh, the point here is, you know, one might take this as an excuse to say, oh, they were just following orders and they were just, how could they not do these experiments? You know, it was just human nature to uh, act like this because you're part of this in-group. Um, well, so I'm we still don't know that, but... I'm not so much given it as an excuse for from human nature as, as suggesting that this seems to be the mechanism by which people do commit atrocity and that it's fairly easy to turn the switch so that you can activate this, um, this, these behaviors. Right. I totally agree. Just wanted to, uh, just wanted to highlight the fact that that's, yeah. you know, it's not an excuse. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I, because yeah, I'm trying to say the opposite that, it's actually because of how easy this machinery activates and the range of behavior it permits that you that you need to be super on guard and aware of uh, uh, your thinking and your feeling in a situation. Because right. you know, the second it's us and them, well, that's what leads up seemingly to the greatest atrocities ever or possible. Um, and the one, and again, the common enemy theme, uh, common enemy identity politics that where, uh, what's our common, you know, Hitler did it somehow, he did this amazing con job of believing, of convincing everybody that the Jews were the, the common enemy. Um, and they went for it, you know, they, it fell into their schema. Yeah, well, and well, I think we're, uh, we're making some good great ground here. And so let, how about we end with the robber's cave experiment, which I think more directly ties to our theme. I, I wanted to try to make that argument with, let's say, let's put a big asterisk next to the Stanley Milgram one. But I, I, that's something I do want to dig into a little because, um, I, well, you know, I want to understand human nature better, and that's why I learned from you. So, you know. Well, the, uh, yeah, so that, uh, let's move forward. If you, uh, I can talk about the robber's cave one. I don't know a lot about it. Uh, if you know as, if you think you know about as much as I do, then go for it. Um, no, 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 please do, please do. Okay. You're the scientist here. Yeah, well, that doesn't mean I'm going <laughs> to, I only know again, uh, a little bit about it. You're the one that brought it up. But anyway, the- That's uh, right, that's right. I did, I, I, I am the one that brought it up, and I did have right. it. So I'll give you credit for uh, uh, calling it out. But the um, robber's cave, uh, there's, it's not really about a cave. It's just about- it's sort of a Boy Scout experiment. And I don't remember what the year was for this, but I'm gonna guess it was also, you know, many, 50 years ago or, or more, I don't know. Um, and the researchers uh, effectively took sort of like two Boy Scout troops out into the woods, except they weren't Boy Scout troops. They were random 12 year old boys, not random, but they were, they were chosen to be um, as two different groups that were sort of similar in their collective makeup. Uh, 12 year old boys with, uh, um, uh, sort of middle class or low middle class upbringing and you know a lot of similarities so and they they brought them out to sort of uh, uh, a woodsy or, or this area called robber's cave so it's just outdoor uh, fun and exploration and they bring them out there and they went through sort of three stages um, and each of these stages was probably uh, you know several days long and uh, in the first stage 
the two groups didn't really even know each other existed. They just thought it was kind of like summer camp. And so here we get on the bus. I don't know any of these other boys. And they go out there and they, you know, have activities that they, they do together. And some of those activities could be sort of mundane, things like playing sports, or some of them, uh, I believe, were sort of particularly driven to try and increase uh, engagement and, and, and bonding, sort of, as you mentioned, the common goals that they would, they would have to pursue. Um, and then that's somehow they, the research has allowed them to sort of fed them information or leaked information that they found out that there was another group of boys. And, and even having not met any of them or known any of the boys, they already started to exhibit, this is sort of stage two, the us, them is already forming. They don't even, you know, it's almost like there was no them, but us has formed. And therefore there's automatically anybody that's not us is them. And so just hearing about this existence of other boys got them sometimes a little bit riled up and they said, oh, we want to, you know, play them in the game of baseball. They, they want to compete. Um, and so eventually they, they, they go to this next stage of the experiment and the boys uh, come together and they interact and they sort of allow them to do this uh, freely, um, but with, with games and sports involved. And, you know, I can't speak to the details, but they're sort of like acrimonious uh, interactions. <laughs> and they are, you know, one team wants to burn the other one's flag and, and vice versa. Uh, and they, didn't, they even come up with these flags and these names for their teams themselves. This, the researchers did not uh, push this. This is just what, I guess, all 12-year-old boys back then and probably still today uh, would do. Uh, so it's not really surprising, I suppose, given it you know fits right in the theme that we're talking about. Um, and so there was you know um, uh, animosity really between the groups, even though they even before they had met. Um, well, I have two. I have two questions based sure. on that. Um, would you then say? And I, I want to make sure to sink the the second question in before before you answer this one because I think you're going to want to answer it fast. <laughs> Is um that do do you think that then? in the development of an identity, whether as a person or a group, and I can, I can pull out some Piaget for next time to maybe add some beef to this comment, that a necessary form, uh, so say the first stage of developing an identity is developing an us, a, de a self-definition, an identity itself. And that the next step is identifying all that which is not you, and that mm -hmm. becomes the them. And there's sort of uh, an antagonism between us and the or you and and them and that ultimately uh part of being an individual is learning to integrate more of that them whether it be information or people into one's group um and and the second sort of question based on that one if if it's right-minded at all would be would that suggest that those people currently playing or well the second question is does that suggest that the us them stage is a necessary secondary part of the the uh, the the production of a larger us group? It's us, then it's us them, then it's a larger us. And would that suggest that those who are currently playing common enemy identity politics are in stage two and need, if they want to develop, you know, more strength or power or collective unity, they need to move to that stage three and find common ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, well, the, for the first part, I, um, you know, this is sort of speculation, but it seems like maybe us and them, you know, if, we're, if once you start to form us, maybe them is just the other side of a, of a coin, of the, you right. know, the other side of the coin. There is no, yeah. even if you're in a void, uh, even though there's, you, to your knowledge, there's no one else in existence, um, you still somehow have this sort of innate them, that is anybody that is not us, even if you, you are not sort of 
consciously thinking of that not us group. Um, and to this, well, I guess it's related to that um, slightly is, you know, like anything, this is um, something that you will, you know, people are, of course are going to develop over time as humans, as individuals, and probably become, you know, we'd hope all of us become more aware of our tendencies to do this over time and are more likely to not automatically exclude or consider someone who's not in our in-group as automatically in the out-group. Um, that may be easier said than done, but I think there's, you know, sort of just level of maturity or growth that every individual goes through. And they may, especially, of course, if they've heard this before, they've, they've been made aware that this is sort of... Um, a manner in which humans behave, maybe they can, they can counter that. Um, that would be a really interesting uh, hypothesis to test too. Manners by which humans develop initial in-group preference for people, mm -hmm. uh, identifiers for in-group and what are the strongest identifiers and then developing based on that cognitive strategies for turning people into in-group from out-group if, if you initially naturally identify them as opposed to, like, say you're an Eagles fan and a Falcons fan is right. in your ear. You're a football fan, and so you, maybe you hate hockey fans. Right, 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 right. Precisely, precisely. You know, there's, there are those seemingly natural antagonisms, right? Like, you're a soccer player, probably not a big fan of baseball or something like that. Uh, it kind of, it can also go a little bit with the, uh, it, 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 again, we can phrase it both in the uh, common enemy identity and the common humanity identity, and I believe, um, in the, in the book we're reading, um, Colleen of the American Mind, I think they even mentioned that, uh, or use a quote from someone else that is, uh, my brother's my enemy, my yes. cousin is the enemy of me, my brother and I, uh, my, hey, uh, I forget the next level, you know, my neighbor is the enemy of my cousin, my brother and I, it, and so it can go yeah. on and it's on. like I against my brother, I and my brother against my cousins, I and my brother and my cousins against like the world or the tribe or the nation. Yes, yes. I thought right. that was really interesting because I was like, then who do you trust? And right. apparently the idea is no one. What and we need is a uh, sort of an asteroid to come and threaten us all. So we'll all have to well, that, <laughs> come together, together and fight it. asteroid is just as likely to come from within with us with nuclear weapons and, you know, the sorts of ingenious sure, sure. things of climate change and nuclear weapons and all sorts of just world strife. Um, yeah, those are, those are things that World War II, in a way, brought a lot of uh, country and people together. Unfortunately, unfortunately, it's such a tragedy in order for that to happen. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because that's something I think we wanted to talk about for next time the, um, or, or the time after. Be building good habits and also the necessity of putting problems in front of minds in order to develop them in an anti-fragile and robust way. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm not. You know, I don't know if you've. Uh, I don't know if you. You might want to explain anti-fragile to anyone that's listening. I, I don't recall whether you've uh, brought that up before in this series or. If that's okay. A, okay. Well, this is personally interesting to me as a developer of minds, as an educator, and um, I think it's relevant to this podcast because it has something to do with the nature of the brain and the brain-mind relationship. And so. Uh, basically, anti-fragility is a concept that is used by Haidt and was come up with by Nassim Taleb, who wrote a book called Anti-Fragile, and earlier a book called Black Swan. And so he identifies systems within nature which require stressors in order to become stronger, and that's how they secure their position within the world. In particular, one of the systems we have in our bodies is the immune system, 
which uh, until recently we didn't have a ton of peanut allergies, but now we have more of them because apparently peanuts are a little bit poisonous. And what we do is you give peanuts to a young human, like a baby level human, whenever they can start eating food or peanut product anyway, and they start to, their immune system comes into contact with it and develops a tolerance. There's an inoculation. And so that's why most people can eat peanut butter. But more people can't eat peanuts these days because their parents are afraid of giving them peanuts because they're afraid that they're allergic, when in reality they become allergic when they're not exposed to the inoculating influence of the peanuts itself. So in treating the immune system as if it is fragile, you actually make it more fragile. It's sort of a Freudian nightmare of you know the mom uh, working to keep the son weak so that he'll be there forever with her. Um, yeah, and, and another uh, one, uh, you know, that's also related to, we can think of it uh, even in, you know, as adults, see, if you don't get enough exercise, you will atrophy or decay away, muscular exercise or skeletal exercise. And too much, of course, is too much, but you have to find uh, enough exercise to keep your body healthy. Yeah, and I'd say probably for 99% of people, too much is not a problem. And... Uh, <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> I mean, I, I work out every day and even I could do more and I'd say, you know, you know, I, I don't, it's funny how we do kind of think in extremes, right? Like often when I hear people say they want to go into a fitness program there, they say like, well, I don't want to get too bulky or I don't want to lose too much weight. It's like, listen, that's not a problem. Uh, get, get to the middle before you, you'll get to the yeah, middle. Yeah. Before you get to the, like, before You're you thinking way too far ahead here. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, so I think we have a couple topics set up for next time. Um, we're either going to go ahead. We, we read another article this time uh, about the relationship between the limbic system and the uh, basal ganglia by uh, a very, very wonderful thinker, Gray. Um, and that was a very tough read for me. So I'll, I'll be happy to have your thoughts on that. And yeah, well, I'll tell you, anytime you start getting into the complexities of subcortical neural systems, basal ganglia uh, uh, in particular, you know, it, it, is, it is a challenge. And um, there are a lot of um, sort of different nuclei that is clusters of neurons connected in very complicated ways. There are a large number of neurotransmitters and, and different types of receptors. Just because you have, uh, I'll give our, or given our viewer, our listeners a preview, but you know, you have dopamine, okay, but the dopamine doesn't, um, different neurons respond differently to the dopamine depending on the type of receptors on the neuron. So it's amazingly complex. And the article you read or that we've looked at is, I believe, from 95. Um, wow. And so we could look at much newer, more recent information. And I think you get a little bit more clarity if you look at things, we'll say, from 20 years. Uh, 20 years has uh, taught us a lot, but it's still murky. It's, it's, it's a challenge. Well, I'm looking forward to getting so into that. That's, uh, that's <laughs> fascinating because, yeah, I, I would like to clean up my thinking about that. And just hearing the, the idea about the basal ganglia, uh, or excuse me, about different cells responding differently to dopamine. That's, well, you know, that's pretty cool stuff. And well, get, you know, strap in, uh, listeners. And also we were going to, we're sort of planning to go through an article that was released a few years ago by the Atlantic talking about sort of, well, what got me fired up about it is it talks about education practice and it, like so many things, lays sort of a problem at the feet of educators, which is actually a problem which can't be solved. And so uh, something personally interesting to me is talking about issues in sort of like intelligence and IQ, as well as issues of sort of um, the strength and durability of the young human mind, as opposed to the perception of it as fragile and requiring 
safety because it, it's looking like a lot of research is coming out that's putting some of these issues to bed and certainly putting contemporary theories and practices about them to bed. And, you know, I think an educator needs to speak up possibly with a neuroscientist making sure that he's saying the right stuff. And that's the person I want to be. This sounds great, Alex. The, uh, I'd like to highlight that although the researchers might put it to bed, that doesn't mean the practitioners and those of us and the rest of society will put it to get to bed. Sure, uh, so sure, sure. Worth, I think this is a transition. Always worth talking about. Yeah, always uh, worth talking about. Well, you know, at least things need to be said first sometimes. Sometimes a problem needs to be identified before it can be solved, you know, or all the time. And so maybe other people will identify the same problems we have um, or agree that we have identified a real problem rather than just had measurement error or something like that. Let's hope so. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, Matt, or Dr. Roos, another great conversation. I can't wait for the next one. All right, thanks, Mr. Schmid. Had a great time. Bye. Bye-bye.